Okay, a reading from 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1 to 4. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Thanks, Maureen. So we continue uh, this series this morning that we've been in for a few weeks now, uh, where we're looking at the biblical images for the church. So you might remember we began looking at the church as the community of the Spirit. Then we looked at the church as the body of Christ. Last week, uh, we looked at the church as a living temple. And then this week, uh, there's obviously a bit going on in this passage, and we'll, we'll move through some of it. Uh, but we're specifically looking at the way that it references the church as the bride of Christ. And so, uh, to focus even a little kind of more specifically in, um, it might be worth just highlighting uh, verse 2 here. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now, as with the other passages that we've looked at, the, the other images that we've looked at, there's more than one instance in the New Testament of this language of the church as the bride of Christ. And to give a little bit of context for what's going on in this particular passage, um, here we find the Apostle Paul uh, simultaneously at his most ordinary and extraordinary. Um, he's being a little bit tricky, actually, in this passage, and, and maybe even a tiny little bit facetious. Uh, but what he's doing is addressing a situation that has emerged in this church in Corinth that he was a part of planting. Um, and it's in this uh, passage that we find him boasting, um, as it were, of his weakness. So if you're familiar with uh, Paul's uh, passage where he talks about, you know, being made, made strong in his weakness, this is the situation that that passage emerges from. Um, what's going on here is that the church that Paul has helped to plant in Corinth is coming under the influence of um, some, some leaders who've come through and into the community, uh, those that he uh, calls the super apostles. Um, and again, he's being a bit cheeky there. Um, but he sort of says, uh, these people who are, have come in and are basically running his influence down, um, he says, if I'm an, an apostle, then these people who are better than me must be super apostles. I don't know if that means that they wear their undies on the outside of their tunics, but... Um, one can hope. Uh, definitely uh, my five-year-old would appreciate that if they were. Uh, he might be unduly influenced by them. Um, but 
what Paul's um, doing is he's dealing with a challenge to his authorities. It seems these teachers have come in. Um, they're saying that the good news, that the gospel message that Paul has preached to the church in Corinth is, is somehow incomplete. They're actually pointing to Paul's poverty. They're saying uh, he's too humble to, to, to be a really significant person. You're going to sit there and listen to the teaching of someone who's obviously, um, you know, just eking out a bit of a subsistence living as a, as a tent maker. And um, they also seem to go after the fact that he's not an amazing public speaker. So in the ancient world, um, there was an association, particularly in the sort of Greco-Hellenic culture, of virtue with um, good public speaking, actually, with what we'd call oratory. So if someone could speak really well, um, the culture sort of held that they must be a virtuous person. And I don't know what Paul was like as a preacher, but evidently um, not so great that people couldn't come in and go, that guy's just a lousy preacher, basically. And Paul's kind of uh, looking at the influence of these super apostles, these people who are running him down, and he's pushing back on them. Uh, he stresses um, in this passage, when you go and spend a bit more time in it, that there has always been something straightforward about the good news of Jesus. And I just felt uh, with, with Joy's word out of the gate this morning, there was such a, an affirmation of the passage that we're going to look at. Because this is something that Paul says has always been central to the gospel, that it's not that complicated. Um, if you've got people sort of saying, yes, there's the grace of Jesus, but then you've also got to think about diet or you've also got to think about particular interpretations of scripture if they're beginning to sort of pile expectations up on this good news that we are saved by grace then Paul's saying be a little bit suspicious there is something so straightforward about the gospel that God loves you and that's about it really <laughs> that's about it and Paul leans into as he's kind of unpacking his case for the straightforwardness of the gospel and for the fact that God has cho chosen him to reveal it. He's leaning into the ordinariness of his appearance and even the ordinariness of the way that he communicates. The fact, Paul says, that God would work through someone like him actually authenticates the gospel. And I had a sense of that this morning actually as well. Sometimes I think we're waiting for pyrotechnics and the Holy Spirit sometimes does pyrotechnics. But sometimes it's enough that he's just here with us. We're together. There's a peace in our fellowship. We can come together and, and worship and spend 20 minutes around a not particularly sophisticated sermon. And the fact that we share a life together, that we've had a revelation of God's love, is, 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 a, is enough. It's a good thing. Paul's leaning into that. He stresses the fact that he has always supported himself and he hasn't uh, been in the business of hitting the church in Corinth up for money. He sees that as something that authenticates his ministry as well because it seems like these super apostles are kind of saying, well, we can, we can do a lot here. We can do more than Paul, but you guys are going to need to stump up. We're going to need to kind of lean into your personal finances so we can drum up a bit of something, something. And Paul's going, I didn't do that. And that 
you should count actually as evidence of the fact that God is working through me. So for Paul, these things about these other leaders, those that he calls the super apostles, are actually issues. They're issues that sort of invalidate their ministry. They're complicating the good news. He's saying it's not that complicated. There's an emphasis in their ministry on appearance over substance. And Paul's saying that doesn't ring true to the Jesus who comes so humbly and dies the death of a criminal. And thirdly, that they're kind of trying to drum some money up, that they're uh, to go back to last week's sermon, they're, they're kind of muddying the waters. The holiness of God's message, the holiness of the temple, who is God's people, is being mixed up and corrupted with other issues, as so often happens when money comes into the picture. So it's against this background that Paul says these words, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. The first thing that might stand out to you about this passage is the way that Paul speaks of the church in terms of uh, Jesus' bride and uses this word jealousy to describe his own and God's attitude to the church and I had cause fairly recently to kind of uh, address the fact that this is a complex term in our hearing. Um, I went and did a little bit of um, detective work on the word jealousy in English and it seems that sometime around the Middle Ages um, this word developed strong connotations of envy, of suspicion and of possessiveness but uh, these uh, connotations aren't actually in the Greek cultural context in the way the language was being used. And you might actually notice that, um, I don't want to go too deep into this because uh, it's enough that we can read the Bible in English, um, but, uh, or we can try to anyway. Uh, you can see this word that's uh, translated jealous in the Greek is actually zelu. And if you're kind of going, is that connected to zealous? then you're right. Um, so the word zealous could uh, also substitute for jealous here. And if you basically take the kind of negative, uh, like God is a 15-year-old who doesn't want his girlfriend riding the train with Trevor uh, out of the picture, <laughs> then maybe Trevor, he ruins so many of our dreams. Um, then you're probably closer to what's going on with this word. So it means to strive for someone or something. And in a cultural context where uh, young women were often very vulnerable, um, there's nothing ennoble about striving to protect a young wife. It just speaks to devotion, the focus of attention that God has on us as his church. And so what we've got here. Uh, with the use of this word, is a picture of, of a God who loves us, who chooses us, who wants the best for us, um, who wants to be in this depth of relationship with us. The other thing uh, that might stand out next to you after the use of this word, jealous, um, is the language of virginity. 
and purity, which I have to admit, as a 21st century um, person, kind of strikes me as maybe a little bit old-fashioned and, and perhaps even a little bit sexist. Um, but that's just because I'm a 21st century person. Um, imagine that we are in the cultural context of 1 Corinthians, Corinth in the first century, um, and uh, we are um, thinking about marriage in a completely different way. So doubtless in any time and place when relationships break down, it's, it's traumatic, it's brutal. Um, uh, you know, the social, economic, relational impact of that is severe in our own time. In the time of Scripture, if uh, there was relationship breakdown or there was an instance of um, a challenge to kind of the integrity of who your offspring was, um, because families were extended rather than just nuclear, uh, to kind of put your... Uh, your, your marriage, to complicate the prospects of your marriage could have impacts not just on your personal finance but actually uh, on the estate of your parents, on the estate of your brothers and sisters and then not just for that generation, the whole kind of future of your extended family could really break down around a marriage that didn't work properly. Um, and so this was a time before paternity tests, it was a time before, um, you know, people could manage um, uh, pregnancy and that sort of stuff. And what Paul's talking to here is just a picture of a marriage that is as straightforward as possible. Um, one that you can depend on, one that you understand where everyone stands. He's, he's speaking of a picture of a marriage where um, there's security and everyone's best has been taken into account. He's making a case for the marriage of the church to Jesus being as straightforward as possible. Um, I was thinking about these vows that we say traditionally when we get married in our cultural context. Um, and it made me remember uh, a couple of years ago when Ira was born, we had... Um, this care from the same midwife, so from the birth uh, through to a couple of postnatal visits. And hopeless romantic that, that I am, this won't surprise you at all, but ab above my side of the bed, there's a big picture of Sharon and I on our wedding day. I know, I know, right? It's just, just I'm just soppy like that. Um, but uh, those of you who have known me long enough to know what I looked like then, um, can probably picture an athletic, uh, fully uh, haired on top, <laughs> um, clean-shaven, very well-presented young man. Um, anyway, I was getting weird vibes from the midwife because she came a few times. And um, after the third time, when she was like doing this, oh, hi, I'm here to see Cheryl. And yeah, I know, we'll, we'll go through this again. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I came home and Sharon was giggling to herself because, I mean, I guess mid midwives see all sorts of families these days, but the midwife couldn't work out why um, 
Sherilyn, as a new mum, was also extending her hospitality to this middle-aged homeless man <laughs> that seems to be going in and out of the house all the time. Um, and I was thinking about that because, you know, when Sherilyn said those vows, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till uh, death do us part, um, she's paying tax on, on that. <laughs> uh, we say those things, I think we say them a little naively on the day, don't we, when we get married, if we've been married. Um, but they soon become a reality, right? The, the, the commitment that we make, um, the reality of throwing your lot in with another human being um, comes home to roost one way or another. And, you know, this might not sound that romantic, but one of the things that you learn to savour um, in a marriage that works, I think, is, is w- where it's not hard, right? Inevitably, <laughs> hardness, difficulty comes down the road when you're married. Um, but you're really grateful for the ways in which your marriage does work, <laughs> for those parts of your relationship where you don't have to struggle, where it's straightforward in the way that God wants his relationship to be straightforward with us as the church. Of course, when you make deep commitments to each other, love gets you there. But married life is hard enough without along the way. And I think this is the picture that Paul is passing on to the church in Corinth. God wants to be in a relationship that works. Don't complicate it with extra teachings. Don't muddy the water with stuff about money don't make it about appearance and not about substance he flips the whole thing on its head he says it's not complicated it's about god loving and choosing you as a community of believers it's never been about how things look (laughs) if you start to make it about how things look it just it just It gets too difficult. It's about substance. And also that money can really get in the way of things. And so if we're in life together as a church, sure, money's important. We can't do anything without it. But if we're kind of jacking up the emphasis on money to cover for some of these other things so that things appear better than they are, so that we can complicate the gospel somehow, then we're unnecessarily complicating the marriage between Jesus and we as his community. I think um, there's something really powerful in our time about a group of people who choose to live from the reality, from a commitment to the fact that substance is more important and appearance, such a countercultural thing. In the same way that Paul sort of says, actually these things, they authenticate <laughs> me as a witness to Jesus. I think those, that's one of the things that could authenticate the church in our age, that our emphasis is on substance and not on appearance. The more things change, 
the more they stay the same. I'm going to get the the band up. We're going to take communion um, pretty soon. But I was thinking um, about the great marriages that I know. You know, I, I actually am really grateful that in a community like this, there's people in all sorts of situations. And I think we try and um, have a culture where, you know, we, we recognise um, the gift that single life has been to people in our midst and, um, and people who've lived their singleness out with integrity. That, that's, that's definitely been a huge witness to me in, in my life. Um, I think we've tried not to make it, you know, such a, a kind of marriage-centric culture. But a good marriage is a wonderful thing, isn't it? So I'll talk about it just for a little bit longer uh, this morning. Um, I'm, I was reflecting on, you know, the great marriages that I'm privileged to, uh, to have kind of had some insight into here. You guys can feel free to, to start to, pr- to play. Thanks, team. And I wonder if you can think about um, a marriage that's impacted you and influenced you. I wonder what it is that that stands out to you about that marriage. I wonder if it's the dependability of that couple. You know, there's something about the stability the stabilising effect of marriage, isn't it? Isn't it? Where you just know whatever's going on in life, that that couple will just be doing what they do because um, they're committed to each other and only committed to their community. Dependability, is that a mark of a great marriage? Maybe we've experienced hospitality as the overflow of someone's relationship where um, because they get together, share life over a meal in a home you sometimes have a seat at that table or a bed in the spare room is hospitality a mark of a great marriage maybe you've witnessed um, in a good marriage the way that a couple can just know one another and want the best for one another the way they can live their life actually in service of the other, that their needs are so kind of bound up one with another that it's almost impossible for them to live selfishly. Is that kind of sacrifice, that kind of generosity, the hallmark of a good marriage? Maybe you can think of other things too. But, you know, it strikes me that that is really as little and as much as what God wants to have with us. A community of people that are dependable, settled enough in our role, who he is to us and we are to him, that people know, I just have to get myself down to in a parade (laughs) and I'll I'll feel that again. I'll be with those people who know who they are and know what God's doing in their part of the world and how he's using them.
they'll have an open home, an open life, a shared life that I have access to. There'll be a generosity there. There'll be a selflessness there. I think that's why this picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church, that of the bride of Christ, is so powerful. Commitment, intimacy, a life that's more than the sum of its parts, that's open to others. There's another picture in the book of Revelation at the end of all things where um, it talks about uh, John seeing uh, what sounded like a great multitude Um, and he says there's a roar and a rushing of waters, loud peals of thunder and shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to the bride to wear. And then an angel said, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then the angel added, These are the true words of God. You know, one of the things that we do when we come to communion together is we anticipate that wedding feast. We're affirming again that just as Jesus has chosen us as his people, as his bride, that we choose him. And actually, this big thing that God is doing in history, restoring all things, putting all things right, we as his bride, as his wife, are invited into that eternal work And so we come and and we eat some bread and we drink some wine. And we think about that day when everything is set right. And the privilege that it is that Jesus has chosen to use us as a part of that good work.